Mullah Nasruddin went to the bank to cash a check. Can you identify yourself, please? The person at the counter asked. Nasruddin pulled his pocket mirror from his pocket and looked at himself carefully and then said, Yes, everything okay. It's me, all right. I'd like to talk about discovering freedom from self. And more exactly, I'd like to talk about ignorance, about the arising of self-grasping and also of pride, and about seeing through these appearances and about inner freedom, humility, and dignity. To begin, I'd like to look at the process of the arising of delusion with regards to a seemingly independent and real existing I or self. It's this kind of delusion or error that is the cause of all suffering in existence. Now, as far back as we can remember, at least I can remember, it's always been I or me who felt, thought, and acted. There's no time that I can remember when I haven't been I or me. The Buddha spoke about beginningless ignorance and with it beginningless delusion with regards to the true nature of all things, and also with regards to the lawfulness of existence. What is ignorance? It cannot be seen, it cannot be touched. Our world doesn't look dark or somehow turned upside down because of ignorance. To recognize ignorance, actually quite some wisdom is already needed to begin with. We really can only recognize it by its effects. The effects, though, are dramatic. Ignorance and delusion are the root causes for all suffering in the world, and for all our personal inner suffering. War, torture, exploitation, hunger, injustice, as much as fear, stress, conflict, sorrow, anxiety, all our neuroses, and so forth, all arises on account of ignorance, delusion, and the emotions that follow from them, like greed, desire, hatred, cruelty, jealousy, envy, arrogance and so forth, and so forth. Now at this point I'd like to define suffering as I understand it here. Pleasant and unpleasant, in terms of our experience, is unavoidable as long as we live in this body, in this world. Even meditation won't change this. Even insight won't change this. 
But what is ultimately unnecessary is our constant reacting with unwholesome, painful emotions, such as the ones just mentioned. Greed, desire, hatred, anger, violence, pride, arrogance, fear, and the rest of it. All of this creates inner suffering. All of this is suffering. The Vipassana teacher Sylvia Borstein summarized these facts by saying, pain is inevitable, suffering is optional. Unpleasant, painful experiences are unavoidable in this life. To create masses of inner suffering is optional. So back to ignorance. Ignorance is also defined in relation to suffering. Defined as not understanding, as not recognizing, as not having realized the so-called four noble truths, or perhaps four ennobling truths. These four truths, or basic facts of existence, are really the central statement in Buddhist teachings. They refer to the following situation. When we look carefully what moves us in life, what drives and motivates all beings, us and everybody, we find one basic principle throughout all of existence. We all want to be happy and we don't want to suffer. That's really the bottom line. And it's in relation to this fact that the Buddha speaks of four truths or four facts of existence. First, the fact of suffering. There is suffering. Second, the fact of its causes, which lie within our hearts and minds. Third, there can be freedom from suffering. And fourth, the path or training or understanding which makes this freedom possible. This for important, relevant facts. We could also look at these four points as a process of healing. You can say we experience a painful state of suffering. Then there's a diagnosis, correctly recognizing the causes of this kind of painful state of suffering. And thirdly, we become liberated from the painful state of suffering because its causes are removed when, that's the fourth one, we apply the remedy prescribed by the physician, the healer, when we take the medicine, when we apply the therapy. I like Stephen Batchelor's image in his latest book. He says, um, Alice in Wonderland comes up to a bottle that has a tag and it says on the tag what one is supposed to do with it and on this bottle it says drink me and he says it's the same with these four basic facts of existence that relevant facts the first one of suffering has a tag that says understand me Recognize, confront me, see that this is how it is. And then the next one, 
that of the causes within ourselves has a tag that says, let go. I mean, we investigate and see what the causes are and then relinquish them, abandon them. And the third one, the one of freedom, says, realize me, on the tag. And the fourth one, the one of the qualities that we develop, the path that we walk on that bottle it says, cultivate me. Whatever our specific approach or path may be, it has to take these four points or facts into consideration. It is ignorance that keeps us from clearly recognizing these four truths, these facts of existence. And we could say, the other way around, the deeper we realize these four noble truths, the freer and happier we are. Enlightenment is, in one way of speaking, the deep recognition and realization of these four truths. That's the definition. That's what is meant by that. Understanding suffering, letting go of its causes, cultivating a path that helps us to realize the causes so that we're free. There's an image or an illustration that shows how we could understand the kind of darkness of ignorance leading to seeing things in a deluded way and that leading to suffering. A kind of well-known illustration often used. Imagine you're in a dark room, maybe in a cave somewhere, in a cellar. It's very dark, but after a while you see a little bit, just a tiny little bit, and you see there's something coiled up lying there right next to you. First thought, it's a snake. And then you realize you're in this uh, tropical country somewhere. Good chance that it's a poisonous snake. Maybe a very poisonous snake. We really get scared. I would. I don't know you. Maybe panic. Our heart races, cold sweat, terror, intense suffering. And then for whatever reason, maybe we stand like this until the morning, or we find the light switch, or we have a torch, or something. We start to see more clearly there's, because there's light, and we realize it's a piece of rope that's lying there. The very moment we realize it's a piece of rope, we see it's a piece of rope. We feel relieved, we feel free, we relax. We're suddenly peaceful. Big, complete change from intense fear and suffering to very peaceful. The darkness in that room corresponds to ignorance, that which somehow allows us not to see clearly. And because of it being dark, there's delusion, the way we perceive things, and from that follows suffering. And the light 
is like the awareness, the mindfulness that allows us to see more and more clearly. And by seeing clearly and understanding, finally, more and more relief, suffering that disappears, diminishes. So the question is, how does this delusion that comes out of ignorance manifest? There are basically two areas where it manifests. One is that it keeps us from understanding the lawfulness of cause and effect of our actions. That's what's called karma. Which means we often don't see clearly enough how much the intention or the motivation behind our thoughts speech and actions really affect ourselves. We don't realize how much wholesome, positive attitudes and motivations that are behind our actions really bring happiness, peace, well-being to ourselves. And we don't realize often how much unwholesome, negative attitudes really create difficulties and suffering in ourselves. That's one part where delusion keeps us from being clear. The other area is that delusion causes the so-called for contrary views to arise. And I don't know if they're so-called, we just made up that word. There are unrealistic views of the true nature of all things, of the actual nature of how they are all experience, all things in existence. And it's this second kind of delusion and its effects which I would like to pursue right now. In the Theravada Buddhist tradition, this aspect of delusion is called ditti, a mistaken or wrong view or perception of things, of reality. So one basic aspect of ignorance clouds our vision, whereby then this wrong view, ditti, arises. And it causes this for distorted or contrary views. They're views that are contrary to the way things really are. First, it sees what is constantly changing and impermanent and unstable in a flux, in a flow, sees that as permanent, as lasting. It says, it sees what is anicca as nicca. Even though we know better, on a kind of emotional or, or instinctive level, that's built in into perception very often, if we're not mindful and aware. We somehow hope or believe that our cherished possession will stay that way forever, will stay with us, and it will stay nice, and it will stay interesting for us. Our good relationship will last eternally, even though it's our third or sixth. <laughs> we know about it. This sense that's what it should do. And it's been like that yesterday and today, so yeah, why not for the next 500 years? This 
mistaken view sees what is really unsatisfactory, what is unreliable, what cannot provide lasting fulfillment as satisfactory, as reliable, as fulfilling. As we see what is dukkha as sukkha. There comes, from there comes the endless hope that next time it will be perfect, next time it will be fulfilling, next time it will be lastingly satisfactory. Whatever it is, our next cup of tea, or our next relationship, our next car, our next therapy, our next job, our next meditation session, our next retreat, our next vacation, or when the retreat is over, then it'll be really good. The third one, very traditional one, I won't go into it, is mistaken or wrong way of perception, sees what is impure and repulsive as pure and beautiful, sees what is asuba asuba. That refers mainly to the reality of the body when one looks what is underneath the skin, very Buddhist approach. The fourth one, again, directly relevant. It sees what arises and exists in a complex, interwoven dependence as independent self-existence, as separate self. Or to use Thich Nhat Hanh's words, it sees interbeing as separate, independent, isolated being or existence. It sees what is anatta as atta. So these are the so-called four contrary views which over and over and over arise within us, caused by ignorance, by delusion and ditti. And here really the reverse illustration applies. We're sitting here with a cobra in our lap and believe that it's a rope. The effects of such an unrealistic way of seeing and relating to ourselves and our world can only create endless suffering. When we relate to cobras in an unrealistic manner, we're going to have a problem. And we do that over and over. The most painful effects, perhaps, are caused by the force of these inverted views, seeing non-self as self. And it's this kind of line I'd like to follow. First I'd like to explain how we could think of the arisal of the concept and the sense of self. And I'll do it in a way that's not traditional, but hopefully somewhat easy to relate to. Imagine as we develop through babyhood, through childhood, becoming conscious of ourselves, becoming conscious of our world. It's very important, very helpful, to learn, to see, to understand, to be able to grasp somehow who I am, who this body is, this self, myself is, and to learn who the others are. Some parts I have more influence on, some I have a less influence on, some parts 
are important for me, some not. I need to understand what is what. And it's necessary to learn to, dis- to distinguish things from each other, distinguish this oval thing that comes from the background, because this oval thing, which later I call mom, seems to be very important in many ways for my happiness and my well-being. We learn then to distinguish different people, separate them from other things, and then to recognize them correctly, give them names. So we learn to discern the things in the world, including ourselves and others, as seemingly separate, independently existing entities. It's helpful to do that. This is Mama, this is I, this is you, this is Ursula, this is Hall, whole thing is house, table, cup, microphone, 100 pound bill, all these things, separate things, different from each other. We do this by using ideas, concepts, designations, and names. A flower is a living, constantly changing organism and even more so our perception of a flower. But the concept or name flower is something fixed, unchanging. It works for every kind of flower. We always mean the same thing, even though specifically they're different flowers. But there again we have names for the different kinds or brands. The fact that they're solid is true for all concepts and designations, for I, you, person, mind, heart, weather, even for weather, it's kind of weather, world, life. And before we realize, we're caught in a world of solid concepts. And because of ignorance and unawareness and delusion, we see the world, beings, and ourselves, me, in a completely unrealistic manner, as if they were separate things, as if they were lasting, substantial, solid, and somehow independently existing, independently from each other and from us, ourselves, and from our perception. And then this tendency gets intensified, strengthened through identification and grasping and clinging gets tighter and tighter. We're taught to side with the English football team, not with the Romanian one, with the Swiss way of life, and not with the Pakistani one. And this becomes particularly problematic when we grasp and hold on to I, me, and mine in this way my team, my way of life, my looks, my reputation, my views and opinions about how life really is. And it's out of this grasping, identifying grasping, that all the unwholesome inner reactivity arises, manifesting as attachment and desire for what I want to be mine, Aversion, irritation, hatred, anger, what I want to be away from me as jealousy, envy, arrogance. 
and all the unwholesome negative actions of body, speech and mind, causing all the possible forms of suffering, arise. As Wei Wu Wei says, the reason why we get into so much difficulties in life is that we do 99% of everything for ourselves and there isn't one. No wonder we suffer. What to do? We have to look at, to investigate this process of eye grasping with clear mindfulness, with very deep interest. Please don't believe that by simply sitting here quietly in meditation, something, just by being quiet here, something important will become clear, something relevant will get transformed and liberated. Sitting quietly for hours in itself is not going to make us wiser and freer. As Achan Cha, the Thai master, put it, there are those who believe the longer they sit, the wiser they must be. I have seen chickens sitting on their nest for days on end. Wisdom comes through mindfulness, through wise and interested attention in all situations, in all postures. It's the looking, the investigating, to be really interested in what's happening. So how do we experience this sense of I, of self? When we're just here, maybe just sitting quietly, just walking, just standing, then the sense of I, of self, isn't particularly noticeable or strong. When we say, today I'm going to Totnes, or I'm sitting here, then we're using the concept, the designation, I, in a correct way, in a correct way, with no problem. That becomes somewhat different as soon as the situation becomes emotional. Then the sense of I can arise very quickly, or quite strongly. When we want, when we desire something that we don't have, I really need such and such thing then there is I, very strongly here, who needs something that I doesn't have. And there's the separation and the strong sense of self-existence, separate existence. When we're irritated, angry, disappointed, or afraid, he hurt me, cheated me, a very strong me. When we feel especially good or bad about ourselves, our existence or our actions. I'm doing great, or I'm really a loser. It's that sense of me being stands out somehow. We could say perhaps in short, whenever the eight winds of the world blow, and they blow very often, that sense of self can arise quite strongly these eight winds, success or failure, two of them. Maybe I come to a retreat, I am told which room is my room, I go there and I'm the first one and I realize, oh, I get the best space or the best bed in the room. 
successful. And then it's night and everybody goes to bed and the person next to me snores really loudly. And, you know, after all, it was the wrong bed and it wasn't so successful. Gain, loss. Like, oh, now I'm really mindful. And then as soon as I notice I'm really mindful, this sleepiness creeps in and the energy sinks and all is gone. Gain, loss, gain, loss. Praise, blame. Remember, some time ago in one retreat, I got two notes on the notice board. I think it was on the same day, maybe. First note said something like, Fred, thank you for the very inspiring words that you say in the sittings. They're so supportive, and you do that so well. Well, praise. There's this other note, I take it, and it said, Fred, you know, I've come to this retreat to be silent. Can you please shut up in the city? <laughs> 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 A good rep- reputation, bad reputation. Another two wins. At a phase where I would keep sitting for, for a while after the bell had rung, so people would see how much of a great meditator I was, you know, who's always in deep samadhi, even when the bell rings, you know, it's, it's just there. <laughs> Being interested in a kind of a reputation. The eight winds blow incessantly in this world, and with it, that sense of, when it hits us, there's a sense of self, of standing out, that arises. Strong experiences of pleasant or unpleasant, joy or praise. I usually call cause reactivity and write there a strong sense of self in us. I'm so afraid. She did this to me. This one, I really did well. He's really stupid, which means I'm really clever. Hey, this feels good. I really want to get more of it. See this. In small ways, in big ways, it happens all the time. It's here that we want to bring awareness into. It's here that we want to look, to feel, to explore. See, how does it feel? Is it words, thoughts, a sense of self, a body sense? How is it? How do I experience that sense of self when it's there? Is it always there? Does it come and go? Is it impermanent, just like all the rest of our experience? Does it change? Does it come and go? Does it arise independence of situations, of different experiences, of conditions? Or is it there independently? Or does it perhaps arise independence of circumstances, but feel very independent, give a sense of being separately, independently existent. When we notice self-grasping, observe and sense with awareness, what is it that we see, that we perceive? When we're really attentive, we see that we grasp different experiences, 
different aspects of experience. You could say different aspects of the five aggregates, different parts or areas of our being. The most common are body, in connection with the body, I hurt myself, identification with my leg, my knee, my back. When my back really hurts, it becomes much more my back than if it's just fine. Or we identify with Vedana, with feeling tone, pain, pleasure, and it becomes my pain or my wonderful experience that I had yesterday, my profound insight that I had yesterday, that I want to have today or tomorrow or next retreat. Identify with emotions, anger, fear, pride. We identify with views and opinions. I really feel people should think green much more. I think we should be more caring for social values. I believe it's best to be conservative. Conditions give rise to views, depending on what our experience is, our situation in life, how this all comes together. And then it becomes my view. And my view is really how things are, right? It's really almost reality itself. Very solid. We identify with consciousness that which mysteriously cognizes that which knows the observer, the witness behind it all. It's a subtle identification there too. In the meditation, in the silence, look, you can even note or label sometimes, oh, grasping of self, sense of I, this is how it feels. When pride comes, or a sense of my opinion, or that sense of the observer behind it all. Sensing this, actually seeing how this works, or seeing it at work, we often want to stop it. Think, oh, now I see how there's a sense of I shouldn't be there. I should get rid of it, it should disappear. Trying to get rid of identification, the grasping, isn't very meaningful here. Seeing clearly, seeing, understanding, observing how these things happen, that's really what matters. Seeing it over and over and over again. And the longer we look, the clearer we see that there isn't anything we need to get rid of. There isn't anything we even could get rid of. That doesn't mean there's nobody there. Here we are, very obviously, sitting on our respective seats in this hall. It's Friday evening. It's the solidifying around the concept and sensify of self that is extra. A text describes the situation in a more realistic way, using the framework of those Four Noble Truths about suffering and the end of it, says, mere suffering is, but no one who suffers. 
Deeds are being done, but no doer can be found. Liberation is, but not the person who attains it. The path is, but no traveler can be seen on it. That's not the philosophical kind of idea. If you really want to watch the phenomena self, I, me, or mine, in action, it can create some situations on purpose, if you like to try it. If you're some, somewhat vain, perhaps, put the kind of clothes or dress on that you would, would never want to wear, just for once. Not totally, obviously off, so that everybody knows now, today, you know, his or she is trying to get a sense of self. But slightly off, just enough that you think people will think, you know, this is, she has really bad taste. Or. And then, you know, you come into the dining hall and nobody, of course, looks, but you know, people see. In a sense, you know. Or perhaps, I don't know, you're proud of your ability to sit motionless for long periods. Move four times in a sitting. Just to see if that's important for you to sit completely motionless and look that way. Or, you know, if you're really good in sitting in full lotus, take a chair. Just watch. And I, last fall I was doing five weeks of retreat on equanimity, on upekā, and it's a samatha practice. It's a, a practice of concentration and calm, abiding. Towards the, maybe the last week or so, I was quite concentrated. Went to the dining hall to get my food lunchtime. And what happens there sometimes, there's no forks, no knives there, because there's two Half of the people eat first, and they, the forks don't come back in time. And I have already tried. It's difficult to eat the salad with the spoon. So I'm a little disconcerted just for a moment, right? Concentrated, maybe not so mindful. And then, you know, I go by my table, and I put down a fork and knife and stuff on my place before I go and actually take my food. And then I go up to the table, and there's this cues. And it's eggplant parmesan, and I really like it. And I have these big spoons in America. There's very big spoons in America. And I take a lot of big spoon of eggplant parmesan, and I want to put it into my plate, and I realize I'm holding my cup, nothing else. And then I was really very much me. There's 90 people, all extremely mindful. And I'm standing there. <laughs> so there's ways of, you know, either just being present and seeing when I arise, or sometimes you can make it happen. Every so often, quietly, this sense of self disappears again. And we all know this. But often we don't pay attention to that. Sometimes it's the sound of the bell, and just as it's hit and the sound comes, for the first maybe half second, 
There's just plain, pure hearing. Just that. Then only thoughts and feelings rush in and, oh, end of sitting, oh, too bad, or oh, finally, and you know, lucky I survived, or whatever are. the thoughts are rushing in. And then immediately it's like, oh, I'm Fred, I'm a guy house, it's Friday evening, I'm on a retreat, I'm supposed to do walking meditation now. Whatever, you know, we start to tell ourselves who we are and what our world is and how everything is, so it becomes real again and solid and we know what's up. That's very fast. Again, there's I and my world. And yet, and we do see that too over and over again in our meditation. Really, there's just that much in every moment, just that experience including sense of self sometimes, just sense of self, and then disappears. Thought, sound of the bell, sound of the rain, just that much. That famous statement the Buddha made, I read on my first talk here. He said something like, in seeing, there's only what is seen. In hearing, there's only what is heard. So forth. In the smelling, there's only what is smelled. Tasting, there's only just what is tasted. The sensing, feeling, there's just what is felt. The thinking, there's just what is thought. And that's all. Moment to moment. And there isn't someone extra who does the hearing, who owns the experience, or who watches it from behind the, see, the scene. So emptiness, a famous, sometimes maybe not so helpful word, simply means empty of independently existing self, empty of separate existence. And emptiness isn't some sort of empty feeling in meditation. It's also not the absence of thought, which also feels sort of empty. It's not vast inner space, even if it's stages of deep absorption. It refers to the experience of non-independent, non-separate self-existence. When our perception doesn't grasp self, the experience is still the same. But it's without reference to someone who has it. It's not referring back to a center, a pit, a me. So it's open. It's free. My Tibetan teacher, Geshe Ratan, wrote about his meditation. When I examined this old monk, who previously seemed so existent, he turned out to be just like the tracks of a bird in the sky. The appearance of a bird just turns to the mind, but when one looks for its tracks, they are inexpressible. Insubstantiality or emptiness is all there is. And at the same time, he was untiringly, whenever he would say something like that, he said, but 
You'll be so stupid to think that you don't exist. That's not what I'm saying. He never trusted us very much in that field. <laughs> it just doesn't appear in that seemingly independent way we often perceive self. To see this, to recognize this, is liberating. Not once and for all, but rather, perhaps we could say, to the deeper that experience of clear seeing touches, the freer we are. The Thai Master Buddha Dasa Bhikkhu made a very clear statement in this respect. He said, Having heard the following statement means having heard every sentence of the entire teaching. It's worth listening, isn't it? Pali says, Sapedhamma nalam abhini visaya. And his statement translates something like, Nothing or nothing should be grasped and held on to. Obviously referring to inner grasping and holding on to. And again, he says, to have heard the statement means having heard the complete teaching of Dharma. To practice this means to be doing all the practices. To attain the fruit of this practice means to have attained the fruit of the entire teaching of the Buddha. <coughs> and again, in slightly different words. No thing, no being, no situation, no experience should be grasped and held, held on to as I, me, or my. That is all. And now I would like to spend just a few more minutes on the closely related phenomena of conceit or arrogance or pride and on the positive qualities that are there in its absence. Absence. It's also out of that ignorance and the delusion that follows it and the self-grasping that arrogance, conceit, pride arises. Conceit is a very troublesome factor of mind and it isn't very much talked about. It often escapes our awareness. We've seen how because of ignorance and because of not understanding, we believe to perceive an inherent solid I, an apparently independent, could say central unit here, within that constantly changing flow of moment-to-moment experience that makes us up. The mind then identifies with, condenses and grasps the sense of self either as a blown up or a superior self or the reverse a strongly shrunk or somewhat inferior self and in this way a seeming separation appears mostly between people beings we could see say a sense of separation sense of being different, of alienation, of not being part of the whole, comes about. 
including with that sense of alienation or separation, respectlessness is created, arrogance arises, a lot of strain and difficulties are created in our relationship with people. It creates envy towards superiors or those we see as being superior or better off. There's an ongoing sense of competition towards the ones who are equal to us or we think of as being equals. And it makes us arrogant towards those seen as inferior in some way or other. And in this way, a somewhat tight or even hostile atmosphere that's created. We can't learn from others. The development of co-qualities within us is prevented. Conceit always creates a sense of separateness. Maybe you could say it is feeling separate. I'm better than you, or I'm worse, I'm less than others, than you, the way Groucho Marx put it. And he said, I would never want to be a member of a club that accepts people like myself as members. Or I'm equal with others. Even there is still separation. It's me and you, even when I think of us being equals. So as long as we compare in this emotional way, a sense of separation remains. The story that illustrates how we feel separate, even though there has never been any real separation between us and others, between us and life. The waves are rolling up on the beach. A deep roar accompanies their constant motion, their dance, as they smashed against the steep cliffs. One day, a very huge old wave came rolling in from afar, very far. It came rolling in, a small young wave pushed off its way next to the old wave and asked the old wave, tell me, have you ever heard of the ocean? Does it really exist? Can you tell me? The old wave thinks for a while and then says, yes, I've heard about the ocean. You know, I think it must exist somewhere, but of course, I've never seen or experienced it myself. See, the wave that forgets that it is the ocean. Not that there is an ocean and then somewhere separate from the ocean can be waves. It's human beings who forgot that they are life, that we are life. Somehow we manage to forget, appearing to be separate experiencing ourselves as separate from the whole. Interesting point Brother David Steindlrast made is that the modern word of, for sin would have to be alienation. And the modern word for salvation, belonging. And that's where we're looking into here. What makes, what creates that sense of separateness 
and then loneliness and suffering and how can we re-see that we've always been one we've always been life itself conceit manifests in us feeling better than those who are poorer than me better than those who are socially inferior those who are prettier less good than those who are prettier than me better than the ones who are less educated less intelligent one can feel conceited for being more advanced spiritually or even for being humble or modest it's interesting isn't it a rabbi one day was ill and had taken to his bed some of his congregation came to pay their respects but the old man seemed to be drowsy so they decided they wouldn't wake him up nevertheless they had a chat and they praised they extolled the rabbi's unparalleled virtues not since the time of solomon said one of them have we had anybody as wise as our rabbi they all nodded and his faith surely not since the time of father abraham has there been anyone with such faith and they all nodded only in moses can we find someone who has conversed so closely with god they said that's true the others said the old rabbi seemed restless but he didn't open his eyes and then finally people left and his wife his wife came up and said did you hear them singing your praises oh yes yes he said well you don't seem very pleased my modesty he complained nobody mentioned my modesty (laughs) the reverse case of conceit also one feels worse than and sometimes we do that you know feeling not so good worse than others and sometimes we think that's even a good thing to feel that way self-depreciation that's the word in english to be convinced that we have certain qualities which in fact we don't have it's also a kind of conceit racism is a cruel form of this disease too nationalism of course next to greed i think is the arrogance of humanity which destroys our environment and our planet so what has the power to dissolve conceit first of course in the meditation again it's enough to simply turn the full light of awareness onto this mind state of conceit of arrogance seeing sensing it fully embracing it closely clearly see what happens to it it will simply dissolve by itself if you're not feeding it anymore and as it's all impermanent it'll just disappear in its own time in the wider scheme of her practice it's different approaches that are helpful conceit implies solidification a kind of process of crystallization 
therefore if conceit is a solidification syndrome then the experience and recognition of change, of impermanence must be what prevents this encrustment one more reason why looking into the changing nature, into impermanence is so helpful, so important here conceit implies a sense of separation therefore seeing and sensing and experiencing over and over the mutual dependency and the close interconnectedness, interwovenness of all life will undermine the foundation for conceit and will foster a sense of connectedness in its place. So by reflection on interdependence and mutual relatedness is so helpful, so essential. And also metta is very powerful because it's a quality of heart that lets us feel the connectedness. Conceit implies grasping at the seemingly independent entity of I or me or mine. Therefore, if we see and experience the substancelessness the dependent arising and disappearing of all processes and perceptions, then the solid sense of self is seen through. Then conceit has no more basis. Instead of conceit, of conceit, of pride, of arrogance, what we find when they disappear, when they lose their power, is really connectedness is a simplicity of the heart, is humility, is reverence for life. That's there, present, quite naturally. Brother Steindl writes on humility. Today, humility is not the popular, popular virtue, but only because it is misunderstood. Many think that humility is a pious lie committed by people who claim to be worse than they know themselves to be so that they can secretly pride themselves in being so humble. In truth, however, to be humble means simply to be earthy. The word humble is related to humus, the vegetable mold of topsoil. It's also related to human and to humor. If we accept and embrace the earthiness of our human condition and a bit of humor helps, we shall find ourselves doing so with humble pride. In our best moments, humility is simply pride that is too grateful to look down on anyone. So pride can actually be positive. And then, then it rests within a sense of connectedness with being. It, it implies then appreciation and respect for oneself, sense of dignity, being in touch with the fact that we're an integral part of life. And then one proceeds in this practice to visualize oneself as being that enlightened being. There's a whole complex process of doing that. And when one receives the teachings on that, 
one is told over and over again that no matter whether the visualization is quite complex and quite well done and elaborate and all that or not, what is really most important in this practice is to do what they call taking the pride of being the Buddha, which means one isn't pretending to be enlightened, but one is the expression of enlightenment. And there again, it's not conceit, it's not making oneself believe that one is more or better than others or than oneself, but it's touching in that fundamental, basic nature of ourselves, of being already complete, being life itself. That kind of pride that is very, that's maybe dignity. When we rest in connectedness, recognize the emptiness or absence of all independent self-existence, then we don't need to compare and judge so much anymore. And all the delusion of separateness disappears. And to close with Martin Buber, whenever humans feel themselves to be above others or before others, then they have boundaries and God cannot put her holiness into cannot pour her holiness into them because God is without boundaries. But whenever humans rest in themselves as in nothingness or in completion, then they're not limited by otherness and they're boundless and God pours her glory into them. like to sit quietly for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.